All right, we are, as you heard from Ben, still in Matthew 5. Apparently Ben doesn't like that. We'll speed up for him a little bit. We'll speed up and see if we can get out of Matthew. Actually, last week, Casey told us this story. Casey was sitting next to Ryan's niece, right, Leah? And she had her Bible open, which is unusual among some of you. So she had a Bible open, and Leah was sitting next to her and said to her, like, why are some of the words in red? You know, you said, well, those are the words that, that's when Jesus was talking. And she said, wow, Jesus talked a lot, you know. (laughs) Yeah, that's why we're walking so carefully through the book of Matthew, because Jesus talked a lot. And it's taking us a long time to work through some of the difficult things that he said. Here were some of them from last week, just to recap where we left off last week. We spent a good deal of time just struggling with four verses. And really the concept we were struggling with was this part. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. We struggled last week with, is he setting up new standards? Is he overriding the standards of the Old Testament? Because he declares that he's not. And then we start to struggle with tonight some of the things that we're seeing. So this led us to a long discussion. If you need to, the talk will be up on our website. But here's the four possibilities that we struggled with at the end of last week. That some people, some Christians say, Old Testament, totally inapplicable. Some Christians in choice B say the Old Testament is fully applicable. We've got to live by every standard in it. Remember, we looked at some of those standards, just a few of them last week, and clearly a lot of us have just kind of looked past that and said, that's not really the way I need to live. Most of us were somewhere in these two. And fairly, most scholars are somewhere in these two. That either you kind of start to make categories. Well, if he was talking about dietary restrictions in the Old Testament, that's out. If he's talking about some sort of ceremonial thing or sacrificial thing, that's out. Only the moral things remain. And then, of course, the other choice, D, is we have to re-examine it. And I'll tell you that after reading a number of different scholars on this, I'm not going to say this is the only answer, but this choice seems to be the one that most adopt. Meaning that now that Jesus has come, we have to go back and figure out what does the law mean for us. And he's about to show us some examples in where we're going. So just that's just kind of a recap of where we've been. I know last week was really theological for some of us. We're like, ah, we're thinking so much. Tonight, I want it to be more about our hearts. Tonight, I want it to be more about the things that are going on inside of us, not just our heads. We do a lot of thinking in this group. That's great. Sometimes we're doing a lot of debating in this group. That's good, too. Tonight, I want to work on us a little bit. So we're talking about these three things tonight, murder, adultery, and divorce. So let's have just a show of hands participating in these sins. How many people have committed murder? Okay, this is good for Ben, because if none of you have committed, we'll just zip right through this. We don't have to do this tonight, okay? Nobody murder? How about adultery? Anybody violated the sacred bounds of marriage? Adultery? Yeah, some of you are like, yeah, if I could ever get married, you know. (laughs) If I was ever even, yeah, would that that would be a temptation, but I'd have to be married first, dang it. Divorce, same thing, right? Yeah, I'll worry about that once I find that person. Divorce, anyone? Okay, good, so we're done. We'll just kind of wrap up. Let's pray. It's clear in some way you could look at this and say, there was a standard 
Murder, adultery, divorce. The standard came from that Old Testament that we just heard him talking about. It's not going to pass away. I've come to fulfill it. And now he's going to talk about each of these. Let's walk through the first one on murder. Jesus begins by saying, you have heard it said. So clearly a reference to older things from the law, maybe from the interpretation of the law by the rabbis. But he's going to make allusion here to the sixth commandment, do not kill or do not murder. You've heard it said, it was said to the people long ago, do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That was the standard. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Stop there. What's he talking about? What's the standard he's advancing? We know the first part. He's just relating back to the do not murder part. What about this anger piece? How does that play in? Ben? Raka is an Aramaic word, and the closest translation in well, the literal translation is kind of a, like empty-headed or emptiness. So the closest translation in English would probably be like, you idiot. It's probably the closest thing. Somebody who's just, you know, like a moron. Actually, that's probably even closer. Because it, it wasn't quite a curse word, but it was definitely insulting. You know, somewhere it was a pseudo-epithet, okay? So is he changing the standard? First, let's deal with that. The standard is murder, you're going to be subject to judgment. You're going to be put on trial, basically. And there's also a, a secondary meaning to judgment, maybe God's judgment. It's going to be a little bit of both. Man's judgment, God's judgment. There's a sense of both of them. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother, does that just relate to brothers, by the way? Yeah, easy? So if you're just angry with a male sibling, that's it? No, obviously that's much broader. Yeah? Could that be referring just like Christian brothers, in a sense? Or like, so that it may potentially not apply to... Christians to non-Christians. I don't know. It's a good point because a lot of people struggle with that word brother. And here's why. Many times when Jesus used the word brother or brethren, he was talking about people relating to the other followers. And remember, a greater point we made is that it's very likely that the whole Sermon on the Mount is directed to how do people who follow Christ, how do they relate to one another and to God and to Christ himself. But in this context, I think there's certainly, this applies to the people that are in the body, for sure. But there's also a sense that it should apply a little bit broader than that. Because I don't think Jesus is saying, you should only not be angry with your fellow Christian. You can be angry at anybody else. The greater emphasis seems to be the word anger. Yeah? Mostly it kind of, there's stages to sin, you know, because everything starts somewhere. Murder, you mean, well, most people aren't psychopathic, you just murder. There's like murders and passion, so it starts with anger. You're angry with that person, it festers, your thought process could lead to other sins. So he's like upping the standard, like in a way stopping us from like false pride because you think that you're like a perfect person because you never killed anyone. Well, if you're hurting people with your words or hating them, it's just as bad. And at the same time, stopping us from the cycles, the steps, like to their sin. Sounds like what you're saying is he's kind of like trying to nip it in the bud before he gets to murder, right? All right, that's a good point to think about. How many of us have ever been angry and just went out and got the anger got so bad we killed somebody? Anyone? Let me ask it a different way, because clearly you wouldn't be here. You'd be locked up. You'd be hanging out with OJ. <laughs> How about this? How many people actually think 
realistically, be real, that you could get so angry it would kill somebody? Does anyone in here think, like, I could get so angry I could kill somebody? Okay? It could happen. I'm not saying it's right, but you're saying it could, you could just snap and it could happen. Okay. So I think there is an element where Jesus is saying that might happen. But for the most of us, I think, what really happens, let's be honest, is we spend time in just letting our anger go for a long time, never dealing with it. It never gets to murder. But he's talking about this part about anyone who's angry will be subject to judgment. Do you see the parallel? I mean, it's the same thing. Like, you're going you're gonna to commit murder, you'll be subject to judgment. But I'm telling you, it's higher than that. It's a higher standard is what Jesus is going to keep repeating. You think that you're good, as you start to identify Monique, just because you don't murder. That you're not subject to judgment. I'm telling you, and look, notice that he's saying, I tell you. He's really equating himself as an authoritative figure who's able to say, I. Meaning, you've heard everything that the law and the prophets set up, but I am giving you an even higher standard. That points to him as a very authoritative person who's able to say, I tell you. Because anyone listening to that would say, who are you to interpret the law and the prophets in a different way? What gives you the authority? And we see that in the Gospels over and over, people challenging the authority. I tell you. Anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Same penalty. So clearly anger is an issue. Yeah, well, like what level of anger? Because it says, like down here, if anybody says there's brother Rakai, it'll answer the Sanhedrin, or a Sanhedrin, but if anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. But technically, they kind of mean the same thing. Or, or what, you know, like, what's the degree of that? There is a little bit of degree between them, right? Somebody's answering to a council, and somebody's actually in danger of the fire of hell. There's a little bit of difference there, right, in judgment. Although, I have to say that that's, sometimes we read the fire of hell, and we're always thinking of just the internal punishment, which is an allusion to it. But the literal Greek, jehenna there, really refers to the burning pit where they used to burn the trash outside of Jerusalem. And if that's the case then it's a metaphor for hell. What he's really saying in either way is both of them are pretty bad. Answerable to Sanhedrin wasn't just they slapped you on the wrist. That was probably pretty bad. Okay? But there seems to be a difference between them. I agree with you. There seems to be a difference. Ben? What about Ephesians 4.26 where it says, be angry with the Gnostic? Yeah. When he's talking about this kind of tension, like either anger without reason, or be angry but don't sin, or what Ryan was picking up on a little bit earlier was just this whole thing about you fool. Some of you may know if you read ahead in the Gospels that Jesus actually uses the word you fools or fools all. So is he setting up a standard that even he doesn't meet? Or is he actually starting to say anger that is not justified, anger that's not righteous, which is really the tenor in that verse in Ephesians? Because God can be righteously angry. A good example of that is Jesus in the temple overturning the tables because he's angry, but in a righteous way over the house of God being turned into a marketplace. Or when he's criticizing the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, he uses that same kind of language of almost a fool. So I think, as you'll see in a few moments, Jesus is not literally in every way saying that you're going to go to hell if you say the word fool. He's trying to emphasize that the anger that's not justified, that just burns inside of us, is the problem. It's anger. And I want to stop right there for a second and just read this next piece. 
Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Jesus takes this so seriously. He's saying, basically, if you're in the middle of an act of worship and remember that somebody has something against you, just stop. Go and reconcile before you even make this offering to God. This is not new. Isaiah said the same thing. This is God speaking. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Here's what I want to do right now. I just want to stop for a second because like I said, last week, real heady debate about what does it mean? How do we reconcile Old Testament law? Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But right now, let's just stop on this point for a second. Look at this piece at the rate we're going in like 89 weeks from now. We're going to talk about Matthew chapter 6. And he's going to say this in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, and it's a closing to the Lord's Prayer. Like he repeats it for emphasis. We're supposed to pray, forgive us our debts, and we also have forgiven our debtors. And for emphasis, he adds in verse 14 and 15, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Be reconciled. And what I want to do right now for a second is I'm actually going to pass out these things real fast to you. And I want you just to take a second. You're not turning this in, by the way. I know a lot of times we do interactive things where you pass them up or something. This is for you. Because what I want to do, rather than just march through these words with some sort of intellectual head knowledge about what they're about, what I want to do is I want to pause for a moment and have us reflect on who we are angry with and who is angry with us. You know, it does no good to walk through the book of Matthew in such detail like we're doing and actually analyze Jesus' words if we're not living this. And this, we're not asking you to go out and die. That's at the end of the book. This is about anger. Don't show this to anybody. This is for you. You can fold it up if you want, but I don't want you to throw it away. Because there are people in this room that are angry with one another. There's people in this room that know that somebody outside of this room is angry with them or you're angry with somebody who's not here. And Jesus is saying to you that your anger subjects you to judgment. Jesus is saying that if we don't forgive one another, he's not going to forgive us. And I think he's saying it for emphasis. And if he's saying it to such a degree, we can't just walk through this without taking a moment. So just spend a little bit of time before the Lord. And write down some of those people that you feel that anger towards that you have not been forgiven by or that you have not forgiven.
Let me uh, stop right in the middle of what we're doing and just pray for the things that you've written down because I think it's more important than just maybe anything else we're going to talk about. Lord, you know our heart and you know the things that dwell there. You know the sin that is harbored. You know the demands that we make on others, even unfairly. You know the pride. You know the anger that we keep inside. Lord, expose our heart, lay it open right now. We've been hurt by other people, and we have definitely hurt other people. Lord, break our hearts. Break our pride. Break our sense of entitlement. Open our eyes to the places that we've hurt others. Shatter our defensiveness. Give us courage to seek in humility that kind of forgiveness and also to just have the courage to forgive others. Lord, if we call ourselves by your name and you clearly tell us the standard, then basically, Lord, we're not being obedient. We've taken your sacrifice for what we want from it, which is salvation for our own purposes, but we refuse to be obedient. And you're telling us to reconcile, especially, Lord, within the body. Give us the strength to do that, Lord. Amen. This week I had a really difficult conversation with my sister because for about 15 years she and I have harbored a lot of anger against one another for a lot of things that happened when we were younger in our family. And she's so angry with me in so many ways that it finally just came out in a conversation that just has like swept me away the better part of this week. It's hard to hear from your sister that you've never been the brother that she wanted. And I also know that you know there's things that we both have done to one another. The real question, though, is what now? So we got to the breaking point where you start to just tell people those things that are inside of you, but what now? Certainly this is talking about a brother and a sister, but it's about all of us. There's people in this room. I'm sure there's people in this room that maybe I've hurt, and I need your forgiveness for something. Maybe you've misinterpreted something I've said. Maybe you didn't misinterpret it. Maybe I should have just known better, or vice versa. If we can't do it here when we know that we have God assuring us of a great future to come and he's done so much for us so that we could be forgiven, it seems crazy that we could hang on and not forgive each other. During that break while you guys were writing, Ryan asked just about, well, what if you can't communicate with them? What if they're in a place where you can't reach them anymore? You know, Jesus kind of addresses this in this next Small parables, like a tiny mini parable that he puts to give further emphasis. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court and do it while you are still with him on the way. You know, as a lawyer, I read this sometimes that I think, is this a commandment from Jesus that we're never supposed to litigate cases? We're just supposed to settle everything? And there are some people who interpret it that way, but I don't know that Jesus is giving advice to lawyers here. He may be. Maybe it's instructive. Maybe it would be better if we get along. Maybe at least among Christians it's better that we not litigate against one another. But I think it's a parable that he's saying, do it while you have the chance. Some of you are still traveling in life with the people that you're angry with or who are angry with you. And if you don't do it, you're going to lose the chance because you may never hear or see them again, like you may never hear from them. Do it while you are still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. 
parable, basically meaning that, you know, if you don't do it, don't take advantage of it, maybe you're the one that's in the wrong and you will be subject to judgment. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. And a lot of commentators say that's really Jesus making an allusion to the fact that if you don't have the chance to be forgiven and you don't forgive, again, a harsh warning, probably not meant to be taken literally, but you may be subject to judgment without any way to get out because you have no one that can forgive you. Yeah. Are we responsible for forgiving people that don't apologize to us for something that they've done? I, I believe absolutely. I believe we're responsible for forgiving people, period. It's difficult when you're not in communication with them. It's difficult when you've never reached any kind of accord of some kind. But I think that harboring that anger inside of us is that kind of festering sin that we're talking about. And this is tough. I know it's tough. Yeah. How do we ask for forgiveness from someone who won't let us get their forgiveness? There's two answers, I think, that I come to the top of my head. One is there is a standard among Christians that we're going to talk about if we ever get deep enough into Matthew that talks about coming to someone who is not sin, who has sinned against you or is in sin and refuses to change. And you're supposed to go once and then go again, and I believe it's in Matthew 18, and then take witnesses with you to really sit down and intervene to try to resolve that situation. And if they still won't listen, then basically you're done. And we covered it in the first week when we were just taking selected chapters of how to not read things out of context, and that's what Jesus was saying. Like, And if they still don't listen... You just disassociate from them. Okay? That's among believers. It's a standard for believers, special standard. But I believe that you need to make that attempt anyway. I mean, Peter asked, how many times do I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Jesus gives them some really, really high standard. But the focus there was on Peter. I mean, Peter, in answer, kind of piggybacking off of what Monique said, Peter still needs to forgive whether he's really communicating or not. This is where... The brother sinned against him, and he still needs to forgive. But yeah, there's some times when the communication totally breaks down, and they won't receive it. I don't believe that's as much of the case as we believe it is. One thing I've seen over the years of being an attorney, so taking this parable a little bit further, is there's an amazing thing that happens when you bring people together and you just put them in front of each other. You know, we call this process in the litigation, so we call it mediation. All that means is you get somebody who's neutral, you bring in the two offending parties, and you sit them down. And here's why this works. And I think this works universally. It's probably why Jesus reminded us to settle. Because when you're behind other people, like Yabner in a way, like behind attorneys like they do with us, like you tell them to do this, and then he tells his attorney, you tell them to do this, and it's like you're really tough when you're hiding behind your attorney. But when you sit them together at a table and you make them face each other, and you say, now tell them what was wrong again, suddenly they're making peace like it was, you know. It's amazing. 97% of cases settle when you put two people in front of each other and you just make them look at each other and realize they're both, they both have dignity, they're human beings, they're both right, they're both wrong about something, and suddenly the peace just comes in the room. I think that's why this settle with your adversary quickly is part of it. Will there be people who will just not listen? Yeah, but I think we think that they're 80% and they're really like 3%. And I think we have to make the effort because a lot of us assume they'll never listen. And I've been so wrong so many times in my personal life when I've thought, I want to tell them, but they're just not going to listen. And then like a year later, we're like both crying and hugging, and I realize I could have told them a year ago, and this would have all been avoided. Settle matters quickly. Look, guys, among us especially, 
If we proclaim Christ to be who he is and we proclaim to be his followers and we're not living this out, it's only because we're just saying, I refuse to be obedient. I'm just stubborn. I don't want to do it. That's recalcitrance in our hearts. Adultery. Let's move into a different one. Here's the standard. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's a high standard. Jesus' teachings, by the way, here speak about you looking at a woman lustfully, but elsewhere the teachings go backwards and forwards the same way. So this is about both. You've committed adultery. This is tough for us to live out. This is one that is a high standard. If we want to talk about how we're really doing in this area, statistics tell us like 85% of us in this room just are ignoring this. Maybe higher when you just think about looking. Most people are just like, whatever, do what I want to do. Jesus emphasizes the toughness of this teaching by saying this, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Why your eye? Why would you gouge your eye out? It's causing you to lust? Just your right eye though, right? Yeah? Because when you lust, you always close your left eye, don't you? That's what I do. That's how people know that I'm lusting. I'm like... (laughs) (laughs) That's how you know. What does that mean? If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. I know. Somebody's like, is that literal? Is it? What do you think? Uh, I think that, I think what I get out of it is that, uh, you know, if, if there's something that you have that's causing you to sin, then get rid of it. So that way it's not causing you to sin anymore. I'm thinking. Is it a parable? Or is it, is he saying? No, it's, it's not literal, obviously, you know, but... You know, I think that, no, if I'm lusting after that chair and it's causing me to sin, get rid of the chair. And then that way... So if you're lusting after a woman, you just get rid of the woman? <laughs> well, you just stop looking at her. It's like, you know, yeah. The other way, it's like... Okay, I, maybe, maybe look away I'm with you on. Well, if you, have, like, if you have, like, magazines and stuff like that that have, like, you know, that you're lusting after, get rid of the magazines, you know? Okay, well, nobody in here has gouged out their eye yet, so apparently you think this is not literal. Is that right? All right, what about the next part? I mean, I just want to, this is a parallel. Here's another parallel. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Same thing? You think it means the same thing? Here's one reason I don't believe he means literally taking out your eye. Because I don't think that solves the problem, does it? I mean, if, if all of you were blind, does that mean you couldn't lust? So you could lust even if you lost... Your eyes and your hands, right? So this is more, it's more to make the emphasis. He's using hyperbole, exaggeration a little bit, to make a strong point. I don't believe he literally means to gouge out your eyes, but that's not the point. The point is the next part. It would be better for you to lose your eye or your hand than to be thrown into hell. And that, I believe, is literal. He's really making a, 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 like he's weighing something. Like, yes, for you, it would be horrible to gouge out your eye. Yes, for you, it would be horrible to cut off your own hand. But that would be better than to be thrown into hell. 
So you have that tension where you have to think, do whatever it takes to get away from this sin. And if you think that you've done enough, you haven't gone so far as to do that. Not literally you should do it, but you haven't gone that far yet. Almost in that same texture as you've not yet shed blood in your struggle against sin. That level. And I think all of us in this room, when it comes to lust, when it comes to the activities of flesh, I don't think we've hit the mark where we fought it to the point where we follow his standard. Yeah. I just want to take it a step back and ask what the sin of lust is, like qualifies. Because I've heard people say it's only imagining you have sex with someone. So people say, no, it's just looking at them and thinking that they're good. But, you know, I mean, there's like all kinds of exaggerations. So what is lust? The word that's translated as lustfully is best described as kind of a word that's like a desire for something that you're not allowed to have. So what are you not allowed to have? We know that God's standard is sex is meant for the the confines of marriage. So that if you're looking at somebody in a lustful way, you're desiring for them for something that is beyond that bound of allowable desire. In the Old Testament, you had do not covet your neighbor's wife. This is actually going further. The covetousness of your neighbor's wife was almost like a, this is an Old Testament standard, so it's going to sound wrong, but it was almost a covet against property because that's the way that women were seen. This is going way above that. This is saying like, there is one place where this desire is allowed, and that's within the bounds of marriage. So if you're desiring this person in any way for any other reason, and they're not your husband or wife, then you're lusting. One thing I think most of us know is we kind of know when we're lusting. You know? You've crossed that line. You know when it is. It's almost like a text. You just know when you're there. You don't have to wonder. Like most of us are not really strained in trying to figure out which is it. We know. In fact, if it was hard to figure out, I would give us more grace. But most of us in our lustful activities are way beyond the bounds. It's not even a question like, is this lust or not? Okay? Most of us know exactly what's going on. We know exactly what we're dealing with. A quick plug in here because we're not going to be able to deal with it. You know, we spent five or six weeks, I don't know, on sexual intimacy and the problem of sex in the body of Christ. And those talks are up on our website if you want to spend time just processing through why does God call us to a holiness standard? What's wrong with the church? What's the rampant problem of sexuality in the church? But statistics tell us that like 85% of people in here are just doing whatever they want. That's a problem. Because, it's, again, it's a matter of obedience. We're parsing out what we want from Jesus. Yeah, I'll take the good advice. I'll take the prayers when people are sick. I'll take the salvation so I don't have to you know, burn up. But what about the rest of it? What about the obedience? Which is calling us to this very high standard. Can we meet it? Some people say there's no way you could ever live up to the Sermon on the Mount. But he's showing us. You want to do it on your own? You want to figure out what God's standard is like? You think whether you're a Pharisee or a Sadducee or whether you're just a person in 2008 sitting in here, you think you can do it on your own? You think you can just open up the Old Testament and see, okay, I haven't killed anybody, I haven't committed adultery, I'm doing pretty good so far. He's saying, you don't even know the first thing about how God's standard would be if we just let you do it on your own without any grace, any mercy. Here it is. This is the standard. All of us would just fall down from the first day. Right eye. Right hand. It was because that was considered the more valuable one. 
And Jesus knows that lust doesn't come just from our vision, although for sure a lot of us that's where it starts, especially in our day and age. We don't even have to be in the same room with the person because you could be lusting across a chat room or on the internet or reading something or seeing something, but also the way we touch. And I dare say that includes touching others and ourselves. There, I said it. Let's <sighs> move on. have a lot of handless people in here. Let's go on. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Now I know that with the exception of a couple, most of you have not been married. So what does this mean for us tonight as we try to apply this into our lives? I just want to make a couple observations about this because divorce touches so many of our lives, maybe not us right now, but our parents. And Jesus is laying down a pretty hard teaching here saying, the Old Testament standard was you could give her a certificate of divorce. In fact, if you want to look at the Old Testament standard, it's right here. It's from Deuteronomy 24. Moses and the, and the Mosaic Law never actually came out and said, you are allowed to divorce, just create a certificate. There was almost an allowance that if you're going to go ahead and divorce, at least do it in a certain order. So divorce maybe was kind of, I don't know, legislated or restricted or regulated as opposed to commanded or allowed. So a lot of people are saying, does that mean that God allowed it at some point and wanted it and commanded it? No, it grew out of a practice of people were doing it anyway, so they created with at least a way to do it. You'll see that in this passage, it's talking about what you can do if you give it. And it doesn't say like anywhere in the passage like divorce is okay so long as you give them a certificate. It's just saying if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her home from his house and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then the first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That's the closest we have of direct scripture that talks about this certificate of divorce. So you notice it was never in there like, hey, this is an ideal scenario. Here's the rules that we're going to follow. This was like, if this happens and you use the certificate of divorce. All right, so I just want to point out, because a lot of people are saying, Jesus is saying there used to be this thing, is he alluding to a point where God might have allowed divorce? I think God's standard is pretty clear. In Mark chapter 10, notice that when God is taught, when Jesus is talking about divorce, he doesn't even mention anything about marital unfaithfulness. He just says, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. There's no mention of marital unfaithfulness. He just says anyone. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. In fact, some people think that this part, except for marital unfaithfulness, was written into Matthew a little later on. Scholars debate whether it was actually there in Jesus' original words or if it was kind of added. The reason I bring this up is because it just emphasizes how much God does not want divorce. Yeah. So I'm not going to try to make excuses for this because I think there's 
there's red flags and signs, you gotta choose carefully, be wise for your life, be married, blah, blah, blah. But in the case where seriously the person you marry turns into someone completely different or gets hooked on drugs like later and is beating you and the children and all this other stuff, like I can't see that God would want you to stay in that situation and that he'd want you to be alone for the rest of your life. And I actually know a story of a woman who ends up in a situation like that and she never married again because like she held to this so like you know wholeheartedly but I just can't believe that if something happens to you like that that's unjust and really unforeseen that God would just want you or be alone for the rest of your life or stay in that you know union. Okay let me address a couple points you raised. First is the grounds for divorce. This marital unfaithfulness there was a word for strict adultery that's not used. Okay? The reason it's not used is because the literal meaning of that word means a woman cheating on her husband. It's only a one-way word. Jesus intentionally doesn't use that word. He uses a different word, which is pornea, which means sexual indecency of some kind. So it could encompass more than just adultery. It could encompass, like, I don't know, some people stretch it to incest. Some people stretch it to other areas. But it always seems to relate to sexual dysfunction, and not circumstances like being beaten. It's a harsh reality, but you have to understand the background why. Because God basically says that we should have one sexual partner. That's the standard. That's the correct standard. So if there's something where someone is violating the sexual union, then you're breaking that, and that's the reason it's read in. In fact, that's the reason that when he speaks in Mark, he doesn't say except for marital faithfulness, because it was presumed that if someone actually broke the bonds of the marital bed, they had destroyed the marriage already. Like, it wasn't the same thing as a divorce. So I hear what you're saying about, one, there are circumstances that are so unbearable that people have to do something. I'm just telling you that his express words don't include that. The second point you made is about remarriage. And I want to be really careful about this, because if you read very carefully, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife causes her to become an adulteress. It's the act of divorce that creates. So if there's no marital unfaithfulness, but you decide to get a divorce for any other reason, that's the act that creates the adultery, not necessarily the remarriage, even though it says anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery, okay? Because you could divorce someone, they could never get remarried. They still committed adultery by breaking the marital union. Jesus in, in Matthew 19 is going to be asked about divorce again. And in that context, he's being challenged because there were two kind of schools of thought on divorce. Almost the no-fault divorce, and then the other people who thought kind of the way he did, that you could only have divorce for marital unfaithfulness. And he was being tested to see where he was on that standard. Okay, there were two schools. Jesus shows that his standard is so much better because he's really talking about marital unfaithfulness, and he will in that subsequent passage in a both-way sense, where it's not just men with all the rights and women with no rights. He actually comes out in a way where it shows that either one of them have the right to expect the sexual union to be preserved and to be kept pure. Again, a God who transcends like time, history, and culture in just understanding, like, well, that's the way we do it now, and that's the way it should always be. He's saying no. And Jesus, actually, if you go through it over and over, constantly putting women on the same level. And that's one of the great things about his authority, and doing it. This is a much deeper subject that I want to drill into because it deals with when's the allowance, how deep is that dysfunction, what are the things, and I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to trail off too much of that. Because tonight was really about the two that I think really hit us the hardest. 
places of our anger and places of our lust. But for some of us, this is deep too. It comes right after his teaching about lust, by the way, that he talks about how divorce, it's like almost the natural culmination at some point if you continue to leave your lust unchecked. Where are you? Take that piece of paper that you wrote on tonight about those people and tell me. Well, you don't have to tell me. Actually, don't tell me. You tell God what it is you're going to do about the people that are on that list. What it is you're going to do so that we're not always just talking. We're not always just kind of like debating. We're not always just talking about the different schools of thought on this or that or all the different scholars. Tonight, there's something much deeper at work, I think, when we're dealing with this. And throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, next week, we're going to talk about oaths, retaliation like an eye for an eye, and what is the standard, love for enemies. I know some of you are preparing an onslaught out here because you're preparing your arguments in the NRA type thing about defense and guns and all that. Like, I'm, I'm waiting for you. We'll get there. We're getting close. I'll give you fair warning so you can bring in your Charlton Heston manuals, you know. But for the next few weeks, as we keep walking through the Sermon on the Mount, as carefully as we are, what I really want to pay attention to more than your mind is your heart and your obedience. Because we'd be wasting our time if we came to the standard that Jesus is setting for his followers and just skipped right through it in an intellectual way without actually pausing to wrestle with what he was saying. So let that be the kind of thing that is going to stir in you. What my suggestion is, fold up that paper that you wrote on and open it up a few more times this week. Pray in front of God and ask him, like, the people that are on this list, what do I do about them? How do I have the courage to approach those people that I've wronged and to deal with the people that have wronged me? And check your lust this week. If you need to, go back and listen to our series on sexuality in the body of Christ. It's a tough series. It's really hard hitting. It's hard to get through. Let's leave it there. Close off in prayer tonight and get ready for next week for the stuff we're going to be doing there as we finish off chapter 5 next week, I promise. Let's pray. Lord, there's so many people in this room that are mature in their understanding of who you are. It's why we come here to sharpen our our faith, to sharpen our minds, to better prepare to be better ambassadors for you when people ask us the tough questions. But Lord, there are going to be so many people who never get a chance to meet us who are only going to see our lives from afar. And now you're addressing directly our character and our desire to be obedient and to follow you. Lord, the temptation will be tonight that when we walk out of here, we fold up these pieces of paper and we throw them away and we continue to hide the anger in our heart confront us, discipline us if you have to, Lord, to avoid the temptation of disobeying your word. This is one place, Lord, that we can meet your standard if we try. And Lord, protect your children. You meant for the bounds of sexual union to be confined to marriage, and we constantly seem to think we know better for ourselves. We constantly seem to get ahead of you on this one. Reign us in, Lord. You know the power that lust has over our hearts. You know the way that we worship sexuality and how addicting it can be and how sweet it can be at the beginning. 
before it turns bitter. Lord, in this one area, we need you almost supernaturally in our lives to keep us focused on your glory and away from our sinful lusts. All of us, Lord, have fallen. All of us have struggled with this our whole lives. All of us, if we laid before you openly, would admit that this is the one area we would like you to take away from us the most. So we do that tonight, Lord. Let your Holy Spirit enter our bodies and make room for the holiness, the set-apartness, the otherness that we're supposed to be for you and help us to conquer and overcome that lust, even if it's your spirit that is the only thing that empowers us, Lord. We ask for that. Pray this in your name. Amen.